Good morning, church. Good morning, City Lifers and visitors. Welcome to church. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm glad that we can come and talk about Jesus and explore God's Word together one more week. It really is a pleasure to be with you. We are still in person at 165 Newark Avenue, 10 a.m. same time here. Well, you're more than welcome to join us if you're visiting or if you've been with us for a while and you want to come in person, like we, we'd love to see you. Uh, but I'm going to say what I say every week. If you are here and you've been hiding online or if you just haven't reached out, uh, reach out. Hit that I'm new button below and I will connect it to you. Open the door and, and I will bust through it. Uh, I've been having coffees with people. People have actually been taking me up on this lately. And so I just want that to continue. If you fill out one of those forms, I will personally reach out to you and let's go get a cup of coffee. Let's go get a, a lunch or a dinner at some point. Uh, what we feel called to do is to help people find home in Christ and in our community. And so let's do that. Allow us to do that. Reach out and I, we will do our part to reach out to you as well. That's what we feel called to do. And I don't, I don't even remember if I said my name, but my name is Pedro Reese, and I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, today we are in our sermon series called uh, Sexuality, Know and Be Known. And in this series, we are like trying to create a greater sexual ethic that's built on scripture of what is sexuality. And like if we say things like God made us as sexual beings, how is that? good and how do we pursue that in healthy ways how do are we be pursue sexual wholeness and be healthy in our sexual expression and how do we like we also think about the bigger issues that we know are conversations in the world today like things that normally the church avoids and like is really quiet on and it is so scared to take a stance on like how do we understand what scripture says be healthy people who are grace filled and powered by love and are called to be a good neighbor. And so how do we do all of that? So this is like our church's first attempt at really offering up a more vibrant, livable sexual ethic as we take into account what sin has done, how deceptive our own hearts are, and like just how much better Jesus was even as a sexual being himself. And so to kind of just like reshape, this is week four, I believe, of the series, to kind of just reshape where we're going and what we're even attempting to do. Deborah Hirsch, one of my favorite authors on the issue of sexuality and faith, she writes this, and, and I like it. I think it does a good job at reminding us what we're here to do. She says, it's one thing to suppress sexuality. It's another to order it appropriately. A proper sexual ethic doesn't deny the fact that we are sexual beings. It develops a framework for the good expression of our good sexuality. I think that often the church offers more silence than any communication on this topic. And so we're all left to fill the holes and like wonder and have all of these questions that we don't have answers to and are too afraid to ask. And like we have been personally hurt and wounded on this issue. Like if you carry abuse or just know what happens in the, in the church, like what the stories that we hear. And it's like, what do we do with all of this? And like what does scripture have to say? And, that, and that's what we're attempting to do, like to build upon God's truth of how do we have a healthy 
vibrant sexual expression, avoiding the, the things that scripture calls sin. Like well, last week we talked about the word porneia and the prohibition around sexual activity there, but like sexuality is more than just having sex. Having sex is a small part of sexuality. It's like how do we be healthy in our identity and in our connection? Our base definition for sexuality is that it's like our God-given desire to connect, to know and be known by people. Like, fundamentally, that's what it is. Like, we have been made to want to know and be known by other people. So how do we do that? And how do we find peace in ourselves? And so today we turn our attention to sexuality and marriage. And just really quick, because this is just the type of person I am, last week we talked, we preached about sexuality and singleness. And I want to reaffirm what I, we affirmed last week, in that someone who is single or has chosen singleness as part of their life, you do not have anything less. That all the stigmas attached to that are cultural, are like us being people and like, thinking that there's a problem, but like if God calls people to singleness, if that's part of the call, then it cannot be a bad or evil thing because God never calls us to something that is less. And so if you are single, you want nothing less. Today we are going to talk about how deep and profound and intense the bond of a covenant marriage is. But I, again, I just wanted to say you do not, you are not less loved or you are not less valuable. Even if you don't want marriage, that's, you want a good thing. If you want marriage and you're not in one, you want a good thing as well. But there's nothing less about you. There's nothing that like fundamentally makes you weird. I, I just wanted to affirm that one time before we move forward. And so today we are going to discuss sexuality in marriage. And here's our big idea. This is the idea that governs out of our scripture for today of like what, what, what like I, if you only remember this one thing, remember the big idea and where to go find it in scripture. Our big idea is this, that marriage is a covenantal home you share with one other person over a lifetime as you pursue oneness, nakedness, and point people back to Christ. Like my one big idea is they're supposed to be simple, but they're never simple sentences. This is, this is what we're here to say. Marriage is a covenantal home you share with one other person over a lifetime as you pursue oneness, nakedness, and point back to Christ. And today we're here to affirm that like marriage is this huge relationship, that it is deep and profound, and it's like a covenant established by God. It's a special human relationship where you're made to know and be known by someone to such a degree and to such a level that only that one person ever gets invited into. And ideally, we're talking about like that one partner doesn't die, that the sins of this world don't encroach, right? But it's the covenant of marriage. In the biblical worldview, is between a man and a woman, and it calls all of your being, it calls all of your being forth to belong to that one person entirely and that person to you. And just, just to, as a note, like uh, next week, we're going to go to same-sex marriage and same-sex lifestyles. And uh, we will preach there because scripture goes there. We won't shy away from there. So that part of this discussion, we're going to reserve for next week. Uh, we're not going to bring that up this week because we will bring that up next week. But marriage is, should be this, the safest home that you ever live in. 
Marriage is this place where sexuality is meant to be explored and fully expressed, where the only boundaries that are placed on the sexual expression are the ones that are created within the marriage but privately by the two people who are in it. It's this home that only you get to build with the person that you're married to, where you also get to live out and express not just like uh, just everything that you might have always wanted to, but where you bring all of your love and your passion and yes, even like fun, and you get to live in that home with this one person who gets to know you and you get to know them on a level that no one else is ever invited into. And so to paint this picture, to paint this bigger, broader, more vibrant, hopefully more healthy expression of this covenant of marriage, we're going to look at where Scripture brings it up for the first time. We're going to, it's usually a good idea to go to where something begins and look at what it says. And so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18 and ending in verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. This is the story that God tells. Genesis 2, starting 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Let's pray over the reading of God's word. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for what you built, and I thank you for the story that you tell. I thank you that the covenant of marriage is something that comes up in your story and it's made by you out of your creativity and ingenuity and out of your love and in your passion and you invite us into that. You tell us to make that room for another person in our beings, Lord, and uh, thank you. I pray that you would help us to talk about sexuality in marriage and how to pursue oneness and nakedness and point people back to you in ways that we might have never thought of before. We love you and we give you all things. Speak to our marriages and also speak to those who want to be married. Uh, and we open up ourselves to you, Holy Spirit. You're invited into this place and into the hearing of your word. We love you. Do what only you can do. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk about this scripture a little bit before we really jump in. God was telling his story here, and before sin was brought into the, God's world by us, by humanity, by Adam and by Eve, God was on the move, and he was creating, and he was like up and down and making all of these things, right? The one who created everything was using, flexing that muscle. Our infinite God was like manifesting all, everything that we know, everything, everything, the universe, 
every animal, every bird, every fish, Adam himself. And after every day of creation, it tells us God gave it a status, right? He says it was good. After every day of creation, it was good and everything was good after every day because God made it. He formed it with his own hands. Everything that was made was like envisioned by this perfect, infinite, creative God who was making this world for himself to be known. And he's doing this and God is making everything until verse 18 of chapter 2. The first thing that God says was not good. He looks at Adam, and the only thing that was not good was that Adam was alone. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so because of this, God puts Adam in a deep sleep in verse 21, and he takes one of Adam's ribs, which, man, like to this day, I, like, I thought about this a lot as a kid, and to this day I was like, man, like God, you really missed an opportunity. Like we should, all of us guys should really have one less rib than women. Like that was, that would cause so many more people to believe you. But he didn't. In his wisdom, he did not do it that way. This is the story that he tells. And sometimes it just doesn't line up with our modern sensibilities. But he puts Adam to sleep and he takes one of his ribs and he makes Eve for him. And then he starts talking and he starts building this better ethic of sexuality in marriage. And so I like want to talk about these three things of oneness, of nakedness, and pointing people to Christ. And so let's start with the oneness. To really address this topic, this issue, I want to read verses 24 and 25 one more time. 24 and 25 is like where we get the bulk, the meat of our theology here. It says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The first thing that like, is so big that we need to like, really start to tackle is this call towards oneness. That marriage, the covenant of marriage, blessed and ordained by God, is this call to oneness with another person. To be one flesh. Marva Dawn, she writes this, she says, Here we see the scriptural presentation of God's design for genital sexuality. We, we talked about that last week, genital sexuality versus social sexuality. She continues, she says, In Genesis 2.24, the man is commanded to leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. The result is a new family unit and unity, especially marked by the covenantal sign of genital union. And I love how God tells this story, right? Like so much about this affirms this oneness. It, it goes so much deeper and the story is so much more uh, tightly, like in a good way, like tightly packaged for us. It's just like so beautiful to me. Not only is the oneness like explicitly stated in verse 24, right? When God creates uh, Eve, but he also like in the how he does all this, it's also expressed to us. Verse 19, it says this, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And I, I, I love that. It's important. That's not just a throwaway line here in Scripture. Like God's telling the story and he's like, everything that you know was made out of the ground. Everything. God picked up some dirt, he molded it, and then he breathed on it for humanity. He put life into it out of this dirt, and everything returns to the dirt at the end. But everything that has ever been, God made from the ground, including Adam. He formed Adam out of the dirt. He put his mouth on us, and he breathed his life. In, in the Greek, it's the pneuma. He breathed 
life into us. And then we started to live. And that's how God made everything, every animal and Adam himself. But Eve is different. Eve has a special origin. See, God puts, her, puts Adam to sleep and he takes one of his ribs. And so, yeah, like technically, if he took Adam's rib, which was made from the dust or from the ground, yeah, technically, she also comes from the ground. But like her story is different and it's special because she came from Adam's body. She didn't just come from the ground like Adam. She was made from him for them to be this puzzle that comes together, this like perfect match that just comes and is like compatible with one another. And it's beautiful because no one else was made this way. Not even Adam was made this way. But Eve was made for Adam and Adam was made for Eve. And even in the way that they were made like this, it's special. And it's different from everyone else. And this is like especially emphasized in verse 23. When Eve is presented to Adam, we see humanity's first words recorded in the scripture. And like, this isn't a history book, but God like, is telling his story in the first words that humanity ever says is a husband looking at his wife and just like marveling at what God had done. He says this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's like, I, I love that. I love how God tells this story. The other week in the Moth MC, we were talking about how, how like, because we're modern people and we want to understand, we're like scientifically based, right? And so we're like, how many days? Is this like a literal six days or was this over a long time? And it's like, I don't know. And we will never know until we see Jesus face to face and ask him that question if you want to. But I love how like here Adam says like, at last, right? No one ever says at last for something that they get when they expect it to or really quickly. Right? He says like, at last, like I just, I love that. He's just so taken by what he's seeing and what God has done. He says, at last, and she's like, bone of my bones. She, she came from me. She's my own flesh. She was taken out of me. And here we see in these three things, like the element of oneness being demonstrated, put into God's story in Eve's creation. That when a man finds a wife, and when a woman finds her husband, they find something really special and profound. And something that is God initiated. That somehow like marriage also is like this huge invisible God having his hand on our lives. Like that's special and indifferent and huge. And not in the Jerry Maguire way, which is like you complete me, because no person will ever complete you. Marriage isn't about that. The oneness talked about here is not like the, the romantic myth of everything's going to be okay. But no, it's like someone where you will spend your whole life becoming one with, being known in an intimate way like no one else will ever do. It's kind of like, I like thinking of it like, you know those people who have dogs and eventually they look the same? I, I love those Instagram accounts where it's like people who look like their dogs. It's kind of like that, but please, in, in none of the bad ways that that might <laughs> entail. And then this comes up in scripture again and again, multiple times, this call to oneness in marriage. Marriage is like this, sexu this sexuality call for you to be one, to be known and intimately known and know another human being. 
comes up in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 6. It sounds familiar. Have you not read, this is Jesus speaking, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees come up to Jesus in this point and they like start interrogating them like they always do. And they're asking about divorce. And Jesus' response is like, how, like okay, how can you separate one person? Like they, These aren't two people anymore. The call of marriage under God is that they two become one. How do you separate one from itself? That cannot be done. That's like the depth of the call of what marriage is according to scripture. And when God sets up a marriage, that's like the oneness that you pursue. And so I like to also think about it like this. Unfortunately, in my life, I've had people who I really respected and admired, people, some people I went to seminary with who, in different ways, their marriages have ended because of infidelity. And I think of it like this, like, because it's so just wrecked me when I found out that, like, this person that I, people who, that I would highly respect, I'm like, wow, like, I would have never thought that this would have happened to them. And it, like, put me in the season of thinking about this, like, oneness in marriage. And I came to City Life married with Anne, and so no one here at City Life has ever only known me. If you don't know my wife, if you haven't interacted with her, you still know her because you know me. No one in this church has ever met Pedro because I am Pedro and Anne, and Anne is Pedro and Anne as well. And so you can't know me without knowing my wife, even if you don't really know her, because she is me and I am her, and we're one. And that's what we are pursuing in our relationship. It's this oneness that God calls us to. And so, like, I also think about, like, infidelity and, like, cheating. It's like, just because I'm the one speaking here, if, like, if there's anything attractive about me that like, causes anyone to think about me in that way, you're not just thinking of me. Like, it's a fantasy if you're just thinking of me because there is no me without her and everything I speak, part of it comes out of because I'm with her because she fills me and because I fill her and what we do, like we do together. And even pursuing my calling as a pastor, I can't do that without my wife. Like, I can't do the, any of this practically, emotionally, spiritually. Like, I can't do any of this without her. And so if you're, like, ever attracted to someone who's married, it's a fantasy. It's not real because there are always two people. You know, I'm 35, and I've been with Anne. I've been in a relationship with Anne since I was 18. When I turned 36... I'll be with Anne for as long as I lived without her. And like, you, I, I am not the same person I was when I was 18. And besides Christ and my faith, no one has played a bigger role in where I am today than my wife. And so that's like the oneness that I think Scripture talks about here, of what is to be pursued in this relationship. And also, Scripture also addresses the, the sexual side of this, like the, act, the having sex side of this, the body side of this. For like whenever we are tempted to say that like sex is just physical or that it's 
can be done is like, oh, like I just lie straight, but now I'm back. It's like something happens, something profound that happens that also fuels our high view of sex. Scripture says this, Paul writing to the Corinthians in chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So it's like this oneness. It's like, yeah, like sex plays a role in it. And like sex is this unifier. Sex is so much bigger and so much more profound. And that's why it's like reserved in Scripture. The biblical worldview is that the act of having sex is reserved for a covenant marriage because it's this thing that joins, that brings together two souls. And so sex can never just be casual or can never just be like something you do with your body and divorce your soul and your spirit from because scripture is holistic and we are one being. And so like the covenant of marriage is this pursuit of like intense oneness to know and be known by another person. We're running very late here. And so the call to marriage is this oneness. And so if you are listening to me and you are single but you want to be married, Consider this, when you meet somebody, ask yourself, can I pursue being one with this person? That doesn't mean, do I like everything about that person? Anne would have never stayed with me if she liked everything about me when I was an 18-year-old brat. Like, but it's like, not that you'll like everything, or not that you'll like every stupid joke or every quirk. It's like, can I be one with that person? Can I spend the rest of my life pursuing this bond that will make me and this person no longer two people, but the same person. And then if you're married and you're listening to this, can you pursue a relationship? Are you pursuing a relationship with your spouse where you're one? Where everything about your being is being wrapped up into that person? Is that what you are striving for in this season or in your marriage? Or do you look more like roommates? or like a legal uh, arrangement. It's big, it's intimate. It, it takes a lot of us. And so because this is a big call, there's also attached to this in Genesis, a call to nakedness. I don't know if you can hear that construction on the road. I'm sorry if you can, but I have, we have no more time. We have to do this. But let me reread verse 25. Genesis 2, it says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I love that. That's special and really profound on a lot of different levels. You know, sexuality in marriage is a march toward what Adam and Eve had in the garden. To be able to be naked with one person and be fully that exposed. They were naked and they were not ashamed. They were physically naked. They were exposed. They were totally known. There was nothing to hide before sin entered, right? There's nothing hiding all of your being in front of this one person. And so physically, it's this total nakedness. But emotionally and spiritually, it's this like being utterly exposed to one another, nothing to hide and no secrets, that this person knows everything, not like every detail, I don't remember every detail of my life, but that like I am fully exposed to this one other person, to my wife, body and soul, and without shame. That's like different, that's special. 
And so like part of the part of this connection in sexuality and marriage is that it's genital and that's like the relationship in where genital sex is like open and freed and there are no more barriers in the life of a husband and a wife unless it is like brought into it. Restrictions are brought into it or like something isn't safe. And there's this like really interesting Hebrew word that talks about sex in the Old Testament. And it's the Hebrew word of yada. And yada literally means to know, but it's also used figuratively. So like yada, I yada, I know that one plus one equals two. But I also, the word yada is used when a husband and wife have sex, when people have sex with one another. It's like this beautiful way of scripture saying like, oh, to like, when you get that close to someone, when you know somebody, when you sleep with somebody, you yada them, you see them more clearly, you like understand them, you have this connection that is way more than just, oh, like, okay, there's my wife Anne, right? Like, oh, like, I really, now I know Anne. Because we did something that is way more than just our bodies coming together, I yada them. And so sex is this process of knowing another person, of being naked in this person. It's like this physical activity that also manifests this exposure to one another, one soul touching the other. And so for all the talk about prohibition, which is good, and like scripture does around sex outside of marriage, inside marriage is a different story. It's a different conversation. Deborah Hirsch, she writes this, and I really like it. She says, when we reduce Christianity to a negative system where fasting becomes more sacred than feasting, law wins, over, wins out over grace, and correct theology becomes more important than divine, in, than divine encounter, we, in effect, become modern-day Pharisees whose ministry Jesus was set against. I, I really like that. I think that that is like really profound. When we reduce Christianity to a negative system where fasting becomes more sacred than feasting, law wins out over grace, and correct theology becomes more important than divine encounter. Like our God is also a God of great feasting, and in marriage, sexually, like there is great feasting, and there is this room for everything that was like unpermissible before was not good for the body and for the soul becomes permissible and great and actually like really lovely and really beautiful but like I want to say that often like there's also this negative side that is also perpetuated by the church like I find it so disgusting so disgusting when I go online and I see pastors go up to the pulpit and preach from God's word that a woman needs to stay fit for her husband because or else he might stray I think that's rooted in what we see here in Genesis I think it's rooted in God calling Eve the helper here. Somehow we read that in our English and we're like, oh, okay, Eve is the helper, right? She's the like ride along. She's just coming and helping me, helping men support them, like doing all the chores and stuff like that. But like the, the onus, and there's something to be said about male headship of the family. That is biblical as well. But like we create this worldview where women are subservient to men and it's like creates all this dynamic and like sexually that means women serve your husbands, do whatever they want, even if you don't like it, even if it feels wrong or dirty or scary to you, like do it or else he's going to find it somewhere else. And I just like hope that the picture 
of biblical, the covenant of marriage that we've talked about is already enough to dispel that like really heinous and disgusting idea because marriage is this covenantal unity in both emotion and in body of pursuing this oneness and this nakedness. Like this nakedness of being fully okay with being exposed to another being and oneness that you're like melding with this person becoming closer and closer in all aspects of life and emotion with this one person. The word for helper here that is used for Eve is the word Ezer. And outside of describing Eve in, the, in this Genesis passage, every other time in the Old Testament, it refers to how God treats his people. And like you tell me how many times we are allowed to treat God as our little helper who is along, who is along for the ride with us. Like that, that never flies. And so like this healthy, vibrant expression of sexuality and sex in marriage is supposed to be mutually a building for fun, for pleasure, for having kids, all of this, but is built by both people to create this safe home for the rest of your life. And so there's a, there's a lot more I would love to say here, but let's move on to the last point, just for the sake of time, the Ephesian mystery. Like I, I did not want today to get by us without bringing up Ephesians. Because this last word that we have for today, I think, is not only countercultural to the world and the picture of marriage and like the romantic myth that we all like have been seduced by or like bred into. And it's also really countercultural to the church. That like often we don't look any different from the world and it's like, oh, you pursue this one person and everything's okay and every problem you're going to be completed. Like, no, it's, it's a different. I'm here to also say that the mystery of marriage is that it's a paradox in that it's also not about you. It's about you. It's the deepest relationship you'll ever enter into with another human being. And all of that is true. Everything we've said about this is true, but the mystery is that it's also like not about you. Eternally, eschatologically, marriages are also not about the two people in it, but they are about Christ. I want to point us to Ephesians. Ephesians 1, chapter 4 says this. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, setting up Ephesians and everything that comes in it to see like, before anything was ever made, before God put into motion all of his design and his plan, made anything that there was, he made his mind up to have us in him, and he set this plan in course to find us in him. And part of that mystery of what God was up to and how big he is comes to us in Ephesians 5, chapter 31 and 33. It says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, does this sound familiar, and hold fast to his wife, and as the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So whereas your marriage is like intimately about you and your spouse, it's also not about you and your spouse. It's about Christ. That the mystery of the covenant of marriage, the design of the covenant of marriage is also so that you have a safe home, so that you're in a covenant that can withhold how powerful sex and sexuality is and keep it in a safe home. It's also 
not about you. It's about Christ and how he loves the church. The institution of marriage is a, a way of God showing what he has been up to all along. And so your marriage needs to be safe and beautiful and oneness and nakedness without shame for your sake, but you know what, also for other believers. To look at your marriage and your bond and say like, wow, there's something different about these two people. They're not perfect. You'll never be perfect. It's like there's something different. And it points people to Christ. There's something in your marriage for other married couples to be like, what is different about these two? Why is their love and their commitment and their integrity so like so in place? It points people to Christ. Like married couples, your marriage should also be a safe place for people who are single. Like that your marriage is big enough to be hospitable for people who are not in these relationships that find a safe home to see and learn what a good marriage looks like, what a healthy, vibrant relationship full of passion and love and sex and like all of these beautiful things to be like, wow, like I want that. Your marriage needs to be a safe place for people who have chosen singleness who will never try to get married, to be, like, to be like known and to know other people. That your marriage in all, I'm not talking about like a, a throuple or like inappropriate relationships, right? A marriage is between one man and one woman. But it's like, oh, like our marriage can house people. We can be hospitable. We can be safe and bring people in and have them feel cared for. And also for us as believers, our marriages need to be safe for unbelievers to see what Christ has been up to. Like imagine if the church, if our church had marriages that were so real and honest and vibrant and different, people could see what Christ did because he like proposed himself to the church because the one metaphor that we have is that one day all this will end at a marriage supper between the church and Christ. Like, that's how he has promised himself to us. We are his betrothed. I think a lot less people would turn down this marriage than we would think. If people saw in our marriages what Christ has been up to all along, like what the plan that God set in motion before the foundations of the world were set, that he was coming after us in marriage, and our marriages need to reflect that as well. And so let's conclude this a little bit. I would love to keep going, but... We're very late already. Uh, there's a phrase that I've heard people divided on. It's pretty innocuous, but uh, the phrase is this, marriages, marriages take work. And I've, I've heard people who don't like that. They're like, oh, I don't like, want to think of my marriage as like another board meeting, another pitch meeting, another sales pitch, another cold call. Like my marriage isn't work. And then I've like also talked to people who are like, just hear the heart of that is like, oh yeah, like anyone who's been married for more than 10 minutes knows that like marriage takes work. It's not easy. It's like you don't fall into it and you're amazing at it. It takes time and effort and years and grace and prayer. Like it takes all of that. And it's like, marriage isn't easy. Because in every marriage, two sexually broken people are pursuing a connection that takes all of us, that takes your whole being. 
And that somehow in the mix of everything isn't ultimately is like also wrapped in Christ. Uh, Ruth Graham was Billy Graham's wife. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, probably the person in human history that has led more people to Christ than any single other person. So like big, right? Influential. She was interviewed once, Ruth Graham, and she was asked, have you ever considered divorcing Billy Graham? Like the great Billy Graham, right? Oh, like the picture of him that we all have as like this glamoring man. And Ruth Graham says, divorce, no. Murder, yes. <laughs> I just, I love that. I, I really like, okay, like this lady gets it, right? She's not being fake right now. It's because marriage isn't easy. Marriage is really big. Marriage isn't a legal document. It's not a legal arrangement. It's not an insurance thing. A biblical marriage is the union of a man and a woman to share the rest of their lives, however long they have together in this life, to pursue oneness, like a, a, just a coming together of life and body and soul and mind to such a degree that like you are not one person by yourself, you're one person with that person. Like the math doesn't add up to us. It's different than what we expect. And marriage is also this call into oneness. I mean, yes, oneness, nakedness. The totally being exposed and naked in front of another person without shame, not shamelessness. Shamelessness is always bad, but without shame. No presence of condemnation, of pressure, of abuse, but like a safe home to be loved, to know and be known by another person, like no one else gets that privilege. I am the only person who gets to know and the way that I do, physically and emotionally. It's like the joy of my life. The ranking of who I am as a person is that I am a follower of Christ first and Anne's husband second and then father, and then pastor, and then a whole bunch of other things. But like, yeah, like besides knowing Christ, I pursue to know my wife more than anything else. And that's the call of sexuality and marriage, that it should be safe and loving and built by both people in it, to be a home that both people want to live in, that's safe for both people. As you pursue oneness and nakedness without shame, and also point somehow everyone you meet back to Christ. And so church, that is the ethic, uh, a piece of the ethic of sexuality and marriage. That somehow God has made a home for men and women to be together, one man and one woman to be together, and express all of what sexuality is with that one person. And so let's continue to have the conversation about this. Join us in our MCs this week. Our MCs will cover this sermon and the, the subject matter of it in this week's groups. So join us. If you're not a part of an MC, email me at pereesatcitylifeandj.com. Like this is a series and a conversation that needs to happen way more past just Sunday, right? Because this is not enough. My communication and no communication of this will ever be enough. Like we need to talk and live this out and put this to body and like live it out. And so join us, email us, and we'll connect you to a group even for this week. And so we love you, and uh, we'll see each other soon. Bye.